Good morning. How are you doing? Good. So I I found this week, you can find anything on the internet, but I found this image of the moon being close to Earth. And I thought of the fact that it's been 50 years since we landed on the moon. 50 years. And those of us who were alive at that time, not a lot of you, but those of us who were remember where we were when that happened. I remember exactly where I was the, the, the night that that, that uh, event occurred. And it got me to thinking about something that Thich Nhat Hanh had once said in... Uh, one of his teachings, Thich Nhat Hanh says, imagine two astronauts. They go to the moon, and while they're there, an accident occurs, and they can't take the ship back to Earth. And they have oxygen only for two days, so there's not enough time for somebody from Earth to come and get them, to come and rescue them. Uh, so they have only two days to live. And if you were to ask them, talk Thich Nhat Hanh, at that moment, what is your deepest wish? They would answer to be back home, walking on our beautiful earth. That would be enough for them. They wouldn't want anything else. They wouldn't want anything to be back here. Walking on earth, enjoying every step, listening to the sounds of nature, or holding the hand of their beloved while contemplating the moon at night. We should live, said Han, every day like people who've just been rescued from dying on the moon. We're on earth now, and we need to enjoy walking on this precious, beautiful planet. The miracle is not to walk on water or fire. The miracle is to walk on the earth. Isn't that beautiful? So I hope these teachings of mine contribute to all of us gaining in awareness and skill about what it means to be, to be here, to be here now, to pay attention. Um, that's really one of the only things we know for sure is that we have an opportunity to see, to look. Now, currently, the quote that is on the masthead of the emails that go out is from a man named Alan Watts. And the quote is, through our eyes, the universe is perceiving itself. Through our ears, the universe is listening to its harmonies. We are the witnesses through which the universe becomes conscious of its glory and its magnificence. Now, I'm going to be referring to and using in this talk today material that I got from Alan Watts. I don't honestly remember how or when I got introduced to the works of Alan Watts. I'm guessing that it was sometime in the mid-60s. Um, Alan Watts was a very prolific man. He wrote over 25 books, probably 50 publications. And uh, though he spent a brief period of time, five years, as an Episcopal priest, his primary interest was Eastern religion, particularly Zen Buddhism. 
And if you go to wherever you get your podcast and look up uh, Alan Watts' podcast, you can listen to him, and and uh, it's free. His son curates has curated those um, recordings of Watts for years, and you can download them and listen to him. And uh, it would be good to do. Watts was a friend of Joseph Campbell's, the mythologist. Uh, he met Carl Jung. Um, he was a professor of philosophy at the California Institute for Integral Studies. He had a fellowship at Harvard. I could do an entire talk about Alan Watts. But suffice it to say that Alan Watts has had a profound influence on your teacher. Um, I've not quoted him a lot, uh, but I, I've certainly been shaped by years of reading him and, and listening to him. And I'll be referring to one particular uh, book of his today. He once said that he was not an academic philosopher, but rather a philosophical entertainer. And um, the worldview that he put forward, like the worldview of many mystics, both uh, Christian, Jewish, Islamic, and, and others, is uh, largely shaped by Hinduism, our, our oldest religion. He's also shaped by Chinese philosophy and panentheism and what in the 60s was called, quote, modern science. He knew nothing. I mean, think of that quote that's on the email. He didn't know what we know today. Um, but what he claimed, I mean, he didn't know what we know about the nature of the cosmos from the Hubble telescope and all of that. But what he claimed, even at the time, was that the whole universe was a cosmic self playing hide-and-seek, hiding from itself, becoming all living and non-living things in the universe, and in the process, forgetting what it really was. And you're going to hear my version of his story before this class is over. You've heard me say many times I've been very, very fortunate to have had in my life an outstanding slate of really, really good teachers. And um, I, I, I never met Watts, but I would consider him one of my really important teachers. He died in 1973. And uh, it was in that time long before I had ever heard of Ilya Delio or any of the people like her, that I had come to be able to say that we are God having the experience of being human. Now, at least I had this at the head level at that time. I don't think that I had it at the heart level, but... Um, I, I, it was during this time that I also had this insight that, um, and, and all of you know this story, it's from uh, the Jesus narrative, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. You know the story, right? So um, Lazarus is a good friend of Jesus, and word is sent to Jesus that Lazarus is very sick. And Jesus dawdles outside of town. He just didn't get his act together to do anything. And uh, if you read the Jesus narratives, actually, Jesus doesn't seem to do almost anything during the week. He just, 
He waits to the Sabbath to do stuff <laughs> and um, break all the laws. So Mary and Martha send for, for Jesus to come because their brother's sick. But Jesus doesn't come. Their brother dies. So Jesus and his group, they approach where Lazarus, Mary and Martha Lazarus live. And, and um, Martha, one of the sisters, sees him coming and she rushes down a road and just reads him the riot act. And says, you know, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And uh, Jesus says, oh, Martha, don't you believe in resurrection? Sound just like something a preacher would say. <laughs> there, there. And she, very compliant parishioner, says, oh, yeah, I believe in the resurrection and the judgment of the last day, which is a big factor in one branch of Judaism at the time. And Jesus says, uh, no, I am resurrection. Right here, right now. I am resurrection. And when Jesus said that, he wasn't drawing attention to himself. Well, he never said that. His disciples said that. But he never said, believe in me so you can go to heaven when you die. His followers put those words in his mouth after their experience with him. Um, he didn't say, but they heard him say, I am the light of the world. That wasn't to get people to look at Jesus, but it was to get us to see the world in the light of Jesus. We don't look at the light, we see by the light, by means of the light. And that's what this talk today is about, choosing to see ourselves, each other, other, others, creation itself in this light. Because such seeing is what gives us meaning. Now, some people hear things like we are God having the experience of being human or Jesus' understanding of resurrection made into something that's right here, right now, and not some pie in the sky, by and by thing, and they get very uncomfortable with that. And um, they might even think or call me a heretic. Why is that? Well, there are a lot of answers to that question, and, and one answer that I've been dealing with for the past couple of weeks is that many, many people are wearing shoes that are simply too small for them. That is to say, they got religious beliefs when they were young, and somehow around the eighth grade, they stopped growing in that area of their lives. They grew everywhere else, but except in terms of religious beliefs and spiritual understanding. Many people get their religion and religious beliefs in place, and those religious beliefs become a substitute for their parents, right? I mean, they do not call the church mother for nothing. And the word father that is used within reference to God, mother, father, you substitute. I have a friend who shares his poetry with me, and, and recently he uh, shared this with me. If you are willing to gamble all on a better life later. Mind your mama and all socio-religious authorities evolved to support, replace her. But if you would live well now, do your own minding while remaining carefully alert to all cloaked images acquired to replace her. You know the word heretic, the word hero, come from the same word, root? 
I, I am personally not on Facebook, but I understand that if you post something on Facebook that people don't like, they can unfriend you. And I think it would be kind of fun to respond to somebody who unfriended or blocked me because of my theology. You know, you, you, you call some service providers now and they keep you on hold for 10 or 15 minutes before you talk to somebody. And then when they come on, they say, would you mind staying on the line after this for a short survey? Well, yes, I would. <laughs> but I would love to ask somebody, I'd, I'd like to say, hey, uh, I really value your opinion about my theology. I'm sorry to see you go. In order to serve you and other people better in the future, could you take a few minutes to tell me why you think my teaching poses a threat to people, especially people who call themselves Christian? I'd love to see responses to that. Now, I really don't care what religion people choose. I do care what people believe. We have some really damaging and destructive behaviors going on in our culture all over the world because people entertain really, really bad beliefs. I'm more interested at the moment in why people believe what they believe. What are the underlying assumptions to people's beliefs? Because what people believe can have damaging effects on other people. You know that. Some of you know it personally. Uh, some of the religious beliefs that you were handed in your childhood were punitive, they were damaging, they were shaming, they were guilt-inducing. Uh, I have seen in my consulting office the results of parents who wanted to instill in their children a healthy sense of self while at the same time indoctrinating these children to believe that somehow they are fundamentally flawed and will never be good, good enough. Hell for these folks doesn't exist on the other side of the grave. It's now. So theology matters. Our perceptions, our beliefs of and about God, how we uh, relate to other people. If God is a God of vengeance, if God is some sort of narcissistic bully in the sky who is interested in nothing less than his own supreme glory, even to the point of threatening you with eternal torture if you don't give it to him, then I'm going to be honest and tell you that your theological positions are deeply problematic. Honestly, if God has the traits of a high school bully, why should anybody love God or feel safe with God? Uh, it's like, and here I'm referencing Alan Watts, there's a cultural conspiracy to keep people from knowing who they truly are and what the real truth is about the nature of the cosmos we live in. My uh, reading of Jesus is that one of his primary purposes was about informing people as to who they really were. And I think we need the truth about what is. This would help us overcome profound acts of alienation that we see going on between people, cultures, um, and, and from the earth itself. So many of uh, our root problems individually and collectively have to do with how we think about ourselves, how we think about each other, how we think about other others out there. And if we could see how connected we really are all of that would be so different.
As you have heard me say on many occasions, we are who we are in God, no more, no less. I got that from Richard Ward. And, and Watts says that we suffer from a lack of common sense. Now, I don't usually use the phrase common sense because when we use it in our conversations with each other, we mean, why don't you think like I think? <laughs> you have no common sense. That's what that means. Don't you have any common sense about how to load the dishwasher or how to hang the toilet paper or whatever it is? What Watts meant is that the feeling and believing that we're separate leaves us no way of making sense of the world in a way that we all agree on in common. Is this not why, as can be seen throughout history, that religions are so divisive and quarrelsome? Now, I want you to hear this very carefully. It is uh, uh, an ir irrevocable commitment to any religion is intellectual suicide. It's an absolute lack of faith because it closes the mind to a new vision of the world. And, and, and what we are about in this time in ordinary life is the terribly important task of rethinking everything, everything, all our theological categories. And, and we don't want to have a closed mind to a new vision of faith in the world. Faith, whatever it is, is an act of trust. As Watts says, no considerate God would destroy the human mind by making it so rigid and unadaptable as to depend upon one book, the Bible, for all the answers. So I want to share with you today another myth. It's not the truth because it's truer than true. And if you confuse it with fact, that would be climbing up a, like climbing up a signpost instead of traveling the road. It's a story that I want to tell to help us get creation correctly, okay? Uh, even Thomas Aquinas in the early 13th century said that if we get creation wrong, we get God wrong. And I would add that if we get God wrong or incorrectly, we get creation wrong. So this is a story that I would suggest that we tell um, children, tell to our children. When they ask uh, questions like, where'd the world come from? Where was I before I was born? Where do people go after they die? And so forth. Okay? Have I given enough credit to Alan Watts? Okay. They're my words, but they're based on Watts' work. And um, is this a story? When, when Jesus was asked really important questions, he told a story. And nobody listening to it said, oh, it's just a story. Or they didn't punch each other in the side and say, hey, you're just making this up, you know. And we still tell those stories. So <clears throat> I can't say once upon a time because there never was a time where there wasn't what I'm talking about. Just like there's never a place on a circle where there's not the circle, it's always a circle. 
Just like the hour hand on a watch, an analog watch, goes around to six and then up to 12. And just like our days go from morning to nighttime, back to morning again. And just like summer goes from summer to summer, and um, at least in Houston, <laughs> insane places it goes to winter or fall, but we just get summer, summer. You, you can't have one thing on the circle without the other stuff on the circle. It's like you would not know what black is unless you could see it alongside of white. It's like the yin and yang in Oriental philosophy. So there have been times when the world as we know it or think we know it is, and there have been times when it isn't. I mean, if the world went on and on without rest, it would get tired and bored. It comes and it goes. It's like a good magic trick. Now you see it, now you don't. It's like your breath. It goes in and out. If you try to hold it one way or the other, it's going to kill you. It's like a game of hide and seek because it's always fun to find new ways to hide and new ways of being found, right? And it's fun to search for somebody who doesn't always hide in the same place every time. God loves to play hide and seek. But because there's nothing outside of God, he has no one but himself to play with. But he gets over this difficulty by pretending that he is not himself. Now, I'm referring to God in the story as he, although God is neither he nor she. But I don't refer to God as it because we usually think of things that are it as not alive. But God is very much alive. Indeed, God is life itself. I know it sounds confusing, but God is not a being. God is being itself. Now, the way that God plays hide-and-seek is by pretending that he's not himself. He pretends that he's you and me and all the people in the world. Even more, God pretends that he's all the animals, all the plants, all the rocks, all the stars, all that is, all who are, everything. And in this way, God has some of the most strange and wonderful adventures, some of which are terrible, some of which are frightening. But really, they're just like the bad dreams we have because when God wakes up, they're all going to disappear. God is so good at playing this game, so good at pretending he is you and me, that sometimes it takes God a long time to remember where and how he hid himself. But that's the fun of the game. It's just what he wanted to do. I mean, if he found himself too quickly, that would spoil the game. Now, this is why it's so difficult for you and me to discover that we are God in disguise, pretending not to be God. But when the game has gone on too long, all of us will wake up and we'll stop pretending and remember that we are one single self. That God, who is all that there is and all who are, is what? lives forever and ever. Now, <clears throat> there are some parts of the God self 
who seem to catch on to the nature of this game a long time before the rest of us do. And these particular God parts are called saints. They're called mystics. They're called avatars. They're called spiritual guides. They're called enlightened ones. They're called by other names. One example of this would be the Japanese poet Basho, who wrote, There is nothing you can see that is not a flower. There is nothing that you can think that is not the moon. He got the game. And I got on to him by another guy who got the name, who's a game, whose name was Thomas Merton. He got the game. And that Hafiz that I mentioned at the beginning, he got the game. Tignan Han got the game. And many, many, many others have. Jesus got the game. Now, <clears throat> of course, God isn't shaped like a person. Persons have skins, so we'll know the difference between what's inside and what's outside. But God has no skin or shape because there isn't any outside to God or inside. This makes your brain sore. Th think about a Mobius strip, you know, one of these. You go home, you cut a piece of paper, you give it half a turn and tape it together and take a ballpoint pen and start drawing on a paper and you go around and around and you find that you have drawn on both sides of the paper. You know that. You know, Mobius strip. Go home and make one and you'll see. Now, you can't directly see God for the same reason as you can't directly see yourself. I mean, the image that you see in the mirror, that's not really you. That's why it takes a lot of work and time to get glimpses of the true self. And if I were any good at being a teacher, I would tell you that. I would tell you, you need to work at this. Every day. You need to have a daily spiritual practice that will help you see. This is how good God is at hiding. Now, people ask all the time, why is there suffering in the world? If all this is really God hiding from God, why does God hide in the form of horrible people? Why does God to be pretend to be people who suffer? from great disease or pain. Now, there is no real satisfactory answer to these questions because nothing anyone can say will cause any time you are in the midst of great suffering um, from physical pain or from the loss of a loved one to say, oh, well, that makes sense. That makes it okay. You must remember that God isn't doing this to anyone but himself. And also keep in mind that from the beginning of our telling stories to each other, we have really enjoyed those stories most where there are good people and bad people. We love the thrill of the story. We can't wait to see how things are going to come out. It's somewhat like playing a game of cards. At the beginning, we shuffle them into this big mess, which is like all the bad things in the world. But then the point of the game is to put the mess into good order. Which, as soon as we do, we shuffle them up again. 
And so it goes to the world. That's the story. You know, scientists use stories to explain reality to us all the time. For example, a scientist will take a balloon and paint spots on it and blow it up to explain the expanding nature of the universe. But the balloon isn't the universe. It's just a way to try to say what is. It's a story. Not just a story. Any more than Jesus' parables were just stories. And yet we live in a culture, you and I live in a culture where there are other stories about the origin of things, whether it's the creation or the birth of Jesus, and they're taken as true test of belief as to whether a person is really a person of faith or not. And there are some people, as I said, who are academically smart in other areas of their, their lives, and yet they still believe the Bible to be literally true about some things. And I would contend that people who think for themselves do not accept that kind of authority. What I learned from Paul Tillich decades ago is that the ultimate ground of being is you. And, and what I learned from people like Thomas Merton and Carl Jung is that the you in question is not the everyday you that we pretend to be, but the inmost self that is so hard for us to see. And when we do see it, it's hard for us to accept. You notice your reaction when I say to you, you're just fine the way you are. You know, I spent, I uh, didn't count it, uh, some of you did with great tediousness. I spent about two years in here teaching from the Gospel of Thomas. And during that time, uh, and for years before that, when I was studying the Gospel of Thomas, I came to the conclusion, which I still hold, that the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas predate the ones that you have in the, in the New Testament. And, and one of the sayings, uh, there's some sayings in the Gospel of Thomas I absolutely love, uh, but one of them is when you make the one, the two one, and when you make the inner as the outer and the outer as the inner and the above as the below, then you shall enter the kingdom. And I am the light that is above them all. And it's into this kind of light that I'm inviting you to use to, to see everything by, especially yourself. Now, rethinking everything, especially our religious and spiritual beliefs, is a critical issue for our time. And uh, one of the reasons that I rant about having a spiritual practice, if we don't do this, the culture is going to take it over for us. If you don't take conscious control of what you put in your mind, the culture is going to do it for you through the images that come into our heads, by how we spend our passive hours entertaining ourselves. Now, I have a confession to make. I think Siri's gone now. <laughs> I hope making confession is, as they say, good for your soul. Um, but here's my confession. I love to watch football. I, knew, I, I mean, I know that in here I talk about the importance of being nonviolent. 
And, and, and football, especially professional football, is about as violent as it gets. Unless you're going to do something like SmackDown Wrestling, which I frankly don't understand. <laughs> you know they put warnings on everything now, on soft drink bottles and on cigarette things. You know they put a warning? I'm not making this up. They put a warning on a professional football player's helmet. Do not use this helmet to butt, ram, or spear an opposing player. This is a violation of the football rules and can result in severe head, brain, or neck injury or paralysis or death to yourself and possibly injury to your opponent. There's a risk these injuries may also occur as a result of accidental contact without intention to butt, ram, or spear. No helmet can prevent all such injuries. I just thought that was interesting. So I'll show you some graphics. All right, just three. For millions of people, what is today? Football Sunday, not church going Sunday. For millions of people. The number one ranked college football team right now, I think, is Alabama. Yes. Right? Yes. Are you an Alabama fan? I'm an LSU fan. LSU fan. <laughs> and they're going to meet on November, on November the 9th. Who's going to win? LSU. LSU. You know who's number two? Clemson. Ever heard of Clemson? Oh, it's a little school in, uh, in South Carolina. And because of its football ranking, it gets a lot of attention. People watch. People go on. You know what they see? This is a football, uh, this is a photograph of um, Dabo Swinney, who is the coach of the Clemson football team. Millions of people see this. He's not saying we're number one. He's teaching theology. He's teaching theology in a public space. Thank God we won. I would never have brought this up except uh, I subscribe to a religious news service that is pretty uh, nonpartisan. This, and it just sort of lets me know what's going on in the world of religion. And there was an article that had another photograph of this same football coach. And the article said how evangelicalism is shaping college football. I read that article carefully, and I determined that it's actually the other way around. Images like this are shaping people's understanding of God. These types of media events expose more people to religious teachings than all the churches and synagogues combined in the United States. Subtle teaching, but it is there. Is this our understanding of the sacred? 
The popular understanding of the Christian religion is, and this is an amazing paradox, so shallow and yet so certain that no wonder thinking people want nothing to do with it. I pulled up behind a car this week that had a bumper sticker on it that said, Stop Global Whining. And I don't know where you are on this, but for me, the evidence is quite clear that there is a crazy destruction of this world and its beautiful, beautiful treasures that are going on. And we're all complicit in it, all of us. Human activity is driving many of the planet species dangerously close to extinction. The globe is facing a threat of multiple extinctions on a scale not seen since the dinosaurs left us. We are entering what is called the Anthropocene era where humans rather than natural forces are the primary drivers behind planetary change. It's not just the destruction of the delicate balance and beauty of our global wildlife. It is the, the victimization of the poor who are the, the most incapable of contributing to, to human greed and the first to suffer from its consequences. What the evolutionists and, and, and the cosmic scientists and the philosophers are telling us is that rather than having a universe that is filled with things, we are enveloped in a universe that is a single energetic event. Watts, long before we know what we know today, was able to see this and say that a star cannot by itself become aware of its own beauty and sacrifice. Stars come into being, and they get gobbled up by other things. But a star through us can reflect back on itself because you are that star. I read recently that the, the refrain of all good science is well after the fact. People look back and say, how could we not have seen this? The, the, the evolutionary process is and has been shaping us to stop and see just what it is that we have been seeing. Let's say that again. The evolutionary process has, is and has been shaping us to stop and see what it is we have been seeing or maybe just looking at and not seeing. Now, <clears throat> I hope you're not wondering what's the practical application of this. But if you are, give me the rest of my teaching life to work it out. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I will see you here next week. Thank you. Thank you.